0: Hello and welcome to the AK-47 Podcast. Today I'm going to continue with my reading of Alexandra Kollontai's essay, The Social Basis of the Women's Question. I am going to pick up where I left off, not in the last episode, which was a conversation with my daughter about the adventure of motherhood, but from the previous episode where we were talking about the social conditions under which free love could be possible. And again, I think it's really important to understand that this essay is written in the early 20th century uh, by Alexandra Kollontai. And this is you know, pre-revolutionary Russia, where she's writing this essay. And she's thinking about the social conditions of Russia at the time. And she's also very cognizant of the idea that there are Western feminists, there are liberal feminists coming from Western Europe, who are talking about these ideas of, of free love and women's independence. And Kolintai is trying to root this discourse more directly to socialism and to understand that women can't truly be free, to argue that women can't truly be free until the social relations of production have been changed. I mean, again, this is the classic sort of socialist feminist view on all of this. And so the section that I'm going to read today is specifically about free love. And I think it's really important because many people consider Kolontai to be this kind of sex radical free love advocate. And, And certainly there are things in her writings where she is challenging the family, she's challenging monogamy, she's challenging a lot of things that we would consider, you know, sort of sacrosanct, particularly in the early 20th century in Russia, which was largely a peasant country. However, she is very critical in some respects of the notion of free love because she understands that free love actually, if it is realized without a fundamental transformation in society, a fundamental transformation in the relations of production, that it's actually going to hurt women. It's going to create more harm to women than it will help them or free them. Okay, here we go. Only a whole number of fundamental reforms in the sphere of social relations Reforms transposing obligations from the family to society and the state could create a situation where the principle of free love might to some extent be fulfilled. But can we seriously expect the modern class state, however democratic it may be, to take upon itself the duties towards mothers and children which at present are undertaken by that individualistic unit, the modern family? Only the fundamental transformation of all productive relations could create the social prerequisites to protect women from the negative aspects of the free love formula. Are we not aware of the depravity and the abnormalities that in present conditions are anxious to pass themselves off under this convenient label? Consider all those gentlemen owning and administering industrial enterprises who force women among their workforce and clerical staff to satisfy their sexual whims, using the threat of dismissal to achieve their ends. Are they not, in their own way, practicing free love? All those masters of the house who rape their servants and throw them out pregnant on the street, are they not adhering to the formula of free love? So here I just want to point out that this essay is written in 1909, and you have Kolintai very directly addressing the issues of sexual harassment at work by employers and uh, the abuse of women who are maidservants or domestic servants at home by the so-called masters of the house. She's very aware of these realities, and she wants to protect women, obviously, from being abused in these circumstances, and she sees the discourse of quote-unquote, free love, as being quite problematic because the men who are in positions of power can use this discourse to force women who don't want to have sex with them to have sex with them and, you know, pretend or propose that they're not truly liberated or independent if they're not willing to have sex with some man who wants to have sex with them because he's their employer. All right, I'm going to continue now. But we are not talking of that kind of freedom, object the advocates of free marriage, On the contrary, we demand the acceptance of a single morality equally binding for both sexes. We oppose the sexual license that is current and view as moral only the free union that is based on true love. But, my dear friends, do you not think that your ideal of free marriage, when practiced in the conditions of present society, might produce results that differ little from the distorted practice of sexual freedom? Only when women are relieved of all those material burdens which at the present time create a dual dependence on capital and on the husband can the principle of free love be implemented without bringing new grief for women in its wake. As women go out to work and achieve economic independence, certain possibilities for free love appear, particularly for the better paid women of the intelligentsia. But the dependence of women on capital remains and this dependence increases as more and more proletarian women sell their labor power. Is the slogan free love capable of improving the sad existence of these women who earn only just enough to keep themselves alive? And anyway, is not free love already practiced among the working classes and practiced so widely that the bourgeoisie has on more than one occasion raised the alarm and campaigned against the depravity and immorality of the proletariat? It should be noted that when the feminist enthuse about the new forms of cohabitation outside marriage that should be considered by the emancipated bourgeois woman, they speak of free love. But when the working class is under discussion, these relationships are scornfully referred to as disorderly sexual intercourse. This sums up their attitude. But for proletarian women at the present time, all relationships, whether sanctified by the church or not, are equally harsh in their consequences. The crux of the family and marriage problem lies for the proletarian wife and mother, not in the question of the sacred or secular external form, but in the attendant social and economic conditions which define the complicated obligations of the working class woman. Of course it matters to her, too, whether her husband has the right to dispose of her earnings, whether he has the right by law to force her to live with him when she does not want to, whether the husband can forcibly take her children away, etc. However, it is not only such paragraphs in the civic code that determine the position of woman in a family, nor is it these paragraphs which make for the confusion and complexity of the family problem. The question of relationships would cease to be such a painful one for the majority of women only if society relieved women of all those petty household cares, which are at present unavoidable, given the existence of individual scattered domestic economies, took over responsibility for the younger generation, protected maternity, and gave the mother to the child for at least the first months after birth. In opposing the legal and sacred church marriage contract, the feminists are fighting a fetish. The proletarian women, on the other hand, are waging war against the factors that are behind the modern form of marriage and family. In striving to change fundamentally the conditions of life, they know that they are also helping to reform relationships between the sexes. Here we have the main difference between the bourgeois and proletarian approach to the difficult problem of the family. The feminists and the social reformers from the camp of the bourgeoisie, naively believing in the possibility of creating new forms of family and new types of marital relations against the dismal background of the contemporary class society, tie themselves in knots in their search for these new forms. If life itself has not yet produced these forms, it is necessary, they seem to imagine, to think them up, whatever the cost. There must, they believe, be modern forms of sexual relationship which are capable of solving the complex family problem under the present social system. And the ideologists of the bourgeois world, the journalists, writers, and prominent women fighters for emancipation, one after the other put forward their family panacea their new family formula. How utopian these marriage formulas sound. How feeble these palliatives when considered in the light of the gloomy reality of our modern family structure. Before these formulas of free relationships and free love can become practice, it is above all necessary that a fundamental reform of all social relations between people take place. Furthermore, the moral and sexual norms and the whole psychology of mankind would have to undergo a thorough evolution. Is the contemporary person psychologically able to cope with free love? What about the jealousy that eats into even the best human souls? And that deeply rooted sense of property that demands the possession not only of the body, but also of the soul of the other, and the inability to have the proper respect for the individuality of the other? The habit of either subordinating oneself to the loved one or of subordinating the loved one to oneself and the bitter and desperate feelings of desertion of limitless loneliness which is experienced when the loved ceases to love and leaves where can the lonely person who is an individualist to the very core of his being find solace the collective with its joys and disappointments and aspirations is the best outlet for the emotional and intellectual energies of the individual. But is modern man capable of working with this collective in such a way as to feel the mutually interacting influences? Is the life of the collective really capable at present of replacing the individual's petty personal joys without the unique, one and only twin soul, even the socialist, the collectivist, is quite alone in the present antagonistic world. Only in the working class do we catch the pale glimpse of the future, of more harmonious and more social relations between people. The family problem is as complex and multifaceted as life itself. Our social system is incapable of solving it. So I'm gonna stop right there for this episode and just reflect really briefly here on of course what Tai is saying, what she's arguing in 1909, and what some of the challenges of her position are for feminist socialist feminists in 2019, 110 years later. Basically, Colin Tai is saying that women can't truly be free, women can't truly be sexually or personally or economically emancipated until there's this fundamental transformation in society, because women not only need to be economically independent of their husbands, but they also need to you know, retain a fairer share of the surplus value that is extracted from them by capital. So she's criticizing, as Kollontai often does, these bourgeois feminists who are suggesting that the family problem can be solved within the existing capitalist structure. And I think here the classic example of this would be somebody like Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, where essentially she's telling women to kind of step up to the plate, sit at the table, get their husbands to chip in more at the household level. And this is often a discussion that plagues socialist feminists, which is you know is the goal to socialize domestic labor and socialize the family socialize childcare or is the goal to get men to help out more around the home and if your only goal is to focus on the socialization of childcare and you're letting men off the hook for this work that they should be participating in then you're kind of you're you're basically a utopian and you're not really taking concrete steps at the moment realistic steps To try to solve some of the care work issues that women face on a day-to-day basis so feminists will say look you know yes it would be great if society if we had universal paid child care if we had a federally mandated maternity leave but we don't have those things and so in the meantime in order to make our lives a little bit more manageable we should try to get our husbands or our partners to help out more around the house and of course, tice sees this as a bit of a cop-out because if you're going to just fight this battle between the sexes, especially obviously if you're in a heterosexual relationship, but I think this is probably true more broadly, that you are kind of, you know, you're deflecting attention away from these larger social problems, which is essentially capitalism and the exploitation of the working class by capital. And so... I think that this has always been a, a point of contention between feminist and socialist feminists, which is what is the real enemy? Is it patriarchy or is it capitalism? And if it's both, how do we fight them both at the same time? And where do we put our energies, given that fighting both things at the same time are, is really, really difficult? Now, I don't think there's a good solution to this problem. I think there's a lot of, you know, challenging issues that face people, women and men, still in 2019. It's not as if this problem has been solved. But I do think it is worth pointing out that as early as 1909, Kolontai is highlighting the fact that feminist activism, if it's only focused exclusively on patriarchy and of trying to get rights and privileges from men, or of trying to get men to participate more in care work, if that's its only goal and it's not really dealing with the larger structures of society that are creating these exploitative relationships in the first place, or increasing women's economic dependence on their husbands or on their partners, that you're just distracting people from the really underlying issue of the social structure and the social system. And you're taking energy away from that fight. Now, I think this point could be debated and it has been debated and I'm sure it will continue to be debated because it's a it's a kind of a critical point in the tension between a sort of more liberal feminism, which is saying, okay, let's take baby steps. Let's reform. Let's try to get men to help out around the house. Let's lean in. Let's try to get women into more positions of power and things like that versus the socialist feminists who are really focused much more directly on changing the social structure and trying to reduce exploitation and then hoping that once you've reduced exploitation in society that a fundamental transformation in social and domestic relations will follow. The other thing that I want to point out here, and I will come back to this in the next episode, is this question of whether or not people are ready for the collective. And here in this essay, Kolintai very clearly points out that Our individualist attitudes are fundamentally underpinning our romantic relationships. This idea of property, this idea of possessing the other person, of treating the other person as something that you own, something that only you have the rights to, the idea that you can control the personality and the time and the affective and sexual resources of that person. And what Tai is trying to get us to see, and we'll, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that she talks at length about this in Make Way for Winged Arrows. She is trying to argue that once we have a more collective society, we, we, we will be able to have more open relationships. We will be able to find more satisfaction in a collective group rather than finding all of our satisfaction in the individual who is our partner. And so this idea of the collective is really important because... One of the fundamental questions that I'm going to be returning to over and over again on this podcast is whether or not socialism starts with the collectivization of the means of production, the social ownership of the means of production, or whether or not socialism needs to start with the collectivization of the family, of our more intimate spheres, I think that obviously Marx was thinking more about the economy, thinking about productive functions of factories and worker ownership of those factories. But Collantin and and here she's really following Engels is pushing us to try to see that maybe we can't build a more collective society when it comes to economic production in factories and informal employment enterprises unless we have first built a collective sense of the family, unless we've really fundamentally transformed the ways in which we are raised. Because here's the thing that I think is really interesting. Kolontai is pointing out that it's going to be very difficult to create a collective society if in our families and in our intimate relationships with our partners, we are raised and trained to be individualistic. There's a fundamental contradiction there. How can you have a more collective society if in our intimate lives, in our personal lives, we are much more egoistic and individual? And that's a tension. And she's right to point this tension out. And I think that as we get through this essay and read some of her later work, I think this is a fundamental tension that we are still struggling with in 2019 and that, and that is one of the most valuable things about reading Kualantai's work today, even 110 years after she wrote these essays, such as The Social Basis of the Woman Question, is that we're still really struggling with this fundamental problem of how do we build a more cooperative and collective society when our family structures are essentially still churning out individuals. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.